Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. I'm very excited today to be joined by Natalia Kurchikova, who's a professor at Stavanger University in Norway. She's also affiliated with the Open University out of England. Natalia, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're doing really interesting research. That's part of how we got connected. You're thinking about how we use our senses and how we perhaps need to broaden our perspective. I think there's some interesting critiques that you might bring to some of the AI hype that is out there. Before we get into that, we always like to get to know our guests in their own words. Can you catch us up a bit on who you are and how you got to this point in your educational journey? Sure, yes. Well, as you introduced me, I work as professor at two institutions right now. I also lead a network of researchers interested in edtech. But really, I think of myself as someone who is very interested in children, technology, reading. And I got to the place where I am now from the little country called Slovakia. That's where I was born. Mm. Post-communist Slovakia, where you know, there were not very advanced education opportunities when I started. So I don't uh, take any of the wonderful, uh, playful opportunities I see right now um, around me for granted. I have very good childhood memories with my grandfather. He really taught me uh, the importance of reading and storytelling and mm. how empowering it is for children. Mm. So... I would say that actually it's really him that I think for where I am right now. That's mm. sort of, mm. yeah, feeling of my own agency and empowerment that he gave me when we were sharing stories together yeah. <laughs> in a little flat in Northern Slovakia. <laughs> yeah. And then that has led you on quite a journey where you're now in Norway and your role is interesting in that you're both doing the the research side of things, but then also connecting into educational technology and trends that are emerging there. Can you catch us up on your trajectory from there? Yeah, I mean, I've been in Norway for some time, and I guess I was always very interested in uh, science that is relevant to society. And, you know, I'm more perhaps of a generation of scholars who are interested in impactful science. So making sure that when you produce a piece of research that it gets translated into resources for children, um, into some communication materials that can inform others' practices. So mm-hmm. I felt that it was a natural way for me to make sure that the research I produce is then used. Yeah. <laughs> so already in my PhD, some of the theoretical concepts we translated into an app called Our Story which was essentially an app to allow children to make their own stories in any format. So it was that sort of idea that children can be story heroes and they can personalize their own narratives in any uh, format, in any length, in any way they would like. And that sort of open-ended design then led to other products that we created with children, for children, and was really the connection I developed with the industry early on in my research career. Yeah. And then it sort of continued with other partnerships and other collaborations. Yeah, but it is interesting, and we'll share links to several of your articles in the show notes for the episode, but it is interesting that there is both some broader work that you've done, which is really more around 
thinking about education strategically and the philosophy, the educational philosophy behind it. But then there's also really concrete work, very specific research you've done around sensory experiences and connecting mm. different sensory experiences to literacy and other learning outcomes. Can you share the range and, mm. and then maybe get into some of the detail? Because I did find the connection to sensory formats mm. to be very inspirational in terms of my own imagination. And I'd love for you to <laughs> share that a little more with our listeners. Yeah, I, I like the way you reflected it back to me because I think of research, like if I think about my own career, I feel that I started very niche and then I sort of, you know, you expand the different aspects of, in my case, children's reading. So mm -hmm. it's like the opposite of a funnel approach. You know, you can't really start with advocacy if you don't have the research behind you. So mm -hmm. that sort of niche focus on children's digital reading was expanded recently with a focus on sensory reading, which is essentially about engaging all children's senses. So I am uh, right now looking at the power of the sense of smell and looking how we can develop olfactory experiences, both in digital hybrid and analog formats. Yeah, exactly. And that's the one as an education innovator who's been thinking about the future of learning for years, the connection of our olfaction to memory and to emotion is something that uh, I've been fascinated by over the years, mm. but I've also been struck by how different it is from the way we think about educational contexts. And then the mm. other aspect of your research that you were touching on is the way in which we think about digital learning and the multimodal experience of digital learning, I thought that was a pretty interesting contrast in that you were researching both how do children respond to digital formats, which is obviously all the rage now, the advent of ChatGPT, which we'll get into in a bit. But then on the other side, you know, almost opening up the embodied experience to all of the senses, understanding that learning happens in a physical human context. Can you expand on those two elements? Because I, I think those two mm -hmm. strands of your research are, are really interesting. Thank you. I, I like the way you articulated. I, I guess for me, the uh, move towards researching multiple senses was not driven by some kind of sudden change. It was more like an organic process in the sense that we know that when we use digital media today, we are very much disembodied, that we are mm. more or less engaging our visual sense, hearing, and then, you know, touching a more sophisticated way with different devices. But really the stimulation of the so-called hidden or silent senses like olfaction and taste and proprioception, so the movement of your body. Yeah, Those senses tend to be not directly stimulated with today's technologies. Mm. So the idea of looking very specifically and in depth at uh, olfaction, the sense of smell, that idea has been floated around for some time. And I certainly had a keen interest in that when we were developing the different technologies with children, but the funding just wasn't there. It was... You know, the COVID pandemic and the fact that many people lost their sense of smell mm. somehow mobilized the interest among funders in 
olfactory technologies. Interesting. So in a sense, I was lucky that my project then was perceived as more relevant and we were able to start a large scale study where we can look at the impact of olfaction on various aspects of reading and uh, children's storytelling. Yeah. And I'd love to maybe go there in some more depth in terms of what you found so far, because it does sound like, you know, we're, we're still in relatively early stages, but there's mm -hmm. enough traction, enough initial findings to signal that there's likely more here. And, and it's something that's been under-researched historically. So can you catch yeah. us up a, a little more uh, on what you found uh, thus far? Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely an uncharted territory uh, when it comes to education. Uh, we really start from scratch, especially early education and children's engagement with olfactory resources. There are some studies in the clinical space, especially when, you know, um, children lose their sense of smell or they don't develop it in a typical way. And then there are many artistic projects where children were engaged in various sensory stimulations. Mm. But when it comes to education, it's mostly the um, domain of uh, special needs education. So when children need to be stimulated with tactile resources, then very often there comes also an additional sense like smell so that they can, you know, have more of a stimulation in the environment. Yeah. But for typically developing children, there isn't anything really when it comes to books that can be designed in a way that they strategically engage children's sense of smell to increase their learning. So we really needed to first develop the right methodologies so that we can track children's progress over time. We needed to find out whether and how children perceive the smells around them in a natural way yeah. before we come with an intervention or with a specific olfactory book. Mm. So the project that I lead has several work packages and each is, you know, related to a different outcome and a different question that we look at. But I can say that in one of them, in one of the work packages, we actually looked at children's preferences for different smells in Malawi. And it was really interesting to me that when you ask children to comment on the different smells that they perceive in their classrooms, they bring in these local foods and botanical names that were totally unknown to me and were quite different from what the researcher and what the teacher reported in the olfactory log. So we have this methodology where we systematically trace the different smells that are, uh, say, in a classroom. You can also do it at home yeah. so that you get a good picture of the what we call olfactory profile mm. um, of, of a kindergarten, for example. Mm. And similarly, in Norway, when we did that sort of olfactory profile of a kindergarten, we noticed that often staff members might not be aware of the different smells that they introduce into the classroom, you know, and I don't mean just like opening the window because you want to, you want fresh air, but also the very strong smell of nail varnish mm. or uh, opening a tangerine, you know, right. so there are these smells that are quite strong and <laughs> influence yeah. children and they travel into their stories. They report them, but as adults, we might not be aware of them. Yeah. Of course, there's the whole issue of the lack of vocabulary around smell, right? That hmm. it's such an abstract concept that to be able to 
articulate what you smell and what it reminds you of, it often is reduced to a food analogy, right? So you say, okay, this reminds me of that and that food mm. because they are connected, taste and smell. Yeah. But to be able to describe a smell that is new to you and doesn't remind you of something, that is something that I would love to see being more nurtured in children. Yeah. You know, to really develop that olfactory vocabulary with them. Yeah. I love that thinking too, just around the invisible senses where if we're able to give better language to those senses, in some ways they become more visible. Your research is helping make them more visible. And then you can design learning experiences that are, you know, truly in a human context. That brings me to the idea of AI, which yeah. I can't get through an episode of Trending in Ed without talking about mm -hmm. what's happening in artificial intelligence. What I found perhaps most striking in the current context is how much of a contrast or a breath of fresh air, if you allow me to play with the ol olfactory angle, mm -hmm. your research is in that, you know, I've done some research into embodied thought and some of the ways in which artificial intelligence is really chat-based, textual in nature. It's not really mm -hmm. fully embracing human experience in the way that, for example, your research is. And you've done research into digital learning, some of the opportunities, but also some of the limitations there. I'd love to hear a little more of your perspective on this massive trend, the hype cycle around artificial intelligence, and then the role that the type of work that you're doing could play in providing some perspective for folks who may be getting caught up in some of the ed tech mm -hmm. hype that is out there. Yeah. I guess there are two aspects I want to mention in relation to that. One is in relation to the sensory reading in the sense that when you think about how we can augment our experiences with technologies, it really needs to be about not replicating the physical experiences, but really, you know, moving it forward in a direction that human beings have not experienced before. And it contributes to better lives, better humanity, better planet, right? So early on when digital books came out, as an example to sort of illustrate what I mean, they were very much simple PDFs that were digitized and then gradually developers were adding different interactive features to the templates and mm -hmm. more or less replicating what happens on a physical page. But then it became more about, okay, well, can we also augment, for example, the audio aspect of it so that you get a piece of music while you are reading, things like that. Mm -hmm. So when smell comes into play, then it is not manipulating the digital book with some kind of replication of the smell experience you have when you hold a physical book. Although there are some um, attempts to do that, you know, like to infuse digital books with yeah. the smell of physical books. I, I was immediately, uh, <laughs> as a child of the 70s, I was immediately thinking of scratch and sniff technology, which was around yeah. the day, aromatherapy is another one that's out there. Yes. I mean, it's both about the ambient smell that you have around you when you read, but embedding smell into specific sections of a book so that you really stimulate the child's attention to mm. specific story events or story characters. I feel that that is becoming more and more popular and it's exactly that kind of experiment we are running. But 
I don't know whether it needs to be about only that sort of one-to-one experience like you as a reader with the book, because if you think about the story universe and, you know, how we are moving towards metaverse and story as something that you really experience with your whole body as you move around and so on, um, it pushes the boundaries of what is actually reading, what is storytelling, what is um, listening to stories, you know. And with young children uh, specifically, that boundary is often blurred. So to me, it's really exciting to think about what might come next. In one of the work packages, we actually had an olfactory exhibition where children in the local museum were opening different olfactory boxes. So they're essentially boxes with different odors and different smells, both good and bad. Yeah. And they were walking around the exhibition that was like an adventure trail of the three little pigs. So Mm. that kind of experience of a story, you know, when you listen to the storytelling in the background and you're smelling these different odors that are linked to the story because there is this bad smell and um, of the pig and then there is this scary smell of the wet dog, but it's actually the wolf who is, you know, uh, lingering around and um, those kinds of things really engage children with their whole body, with all their curiosity and fantasy in the story. So that I think we'll see more and more of rather than these static experiences, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to mention in relation to AI is personalization, because really the way current AI is personalizing is much uh, more precise than it was before, right? So the deeply personalized recommendations we can provide children with when it comes to the next learning step. They're based both on what they previously engaged with, what their peers engaged with, and what they could be engaging with. Mm. So that sort of depository of knowledge that we can train these specialized bots with is really not comparable to one single teacher, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. So the question of personalization is interesting to me because if that is the trajectory we'll be going with education in the future, then it's really both a bit scary and exciting to be thinking about what happens to our collective knowledge, Mm. you know, because as you over time get these more and more personalized recommendations that matter to you for your own local context and that are tailored to your previous performance and all that, then the question of general knowledge and what matters to the collective responsibility we have becomes quite, yeah, it it becomes very pronounced in that space. And uh, as I say, I think it's both an exciting and a scary prospect. Yeah, really does get the imagination going, thinking about the implications around storytelling, the implications mm. around uh, learning design and game design, you know, edutainment is something else that I mm. talk about a lot where, you know, putting it in that full context, even the implications for virtual experiences. I don't know if I really had thought much about bringing olfaction, maybe a little bit of proprioception and, you know, like movement. Mm. But it is really a time to to kind of open up thinking. And that's why I I very much appreciate the research that you're doing, because I do think it does have practical implications. And then as a parent of a four-year-old, it definitely Mm -hmm. activates my imagination when I think about, you know, what kind of learning experiences Mm -hmm. and contexts can we be designing 
for kids nowadays. The other element that I, I wanted to touch on, because I don't know if I've had folks from Norway and from really your experience on the show, we frequently in, in the U.S. and in education circles talk about Scandinavia as this idyllic wonderland where all the education <laughs> is amazing. But it does seem like there's certainly some lessons to be learned. And, and you're, you know, not just from Norway, you also have the Slovakia background. And I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on what perhaps Norway's model has to offer and some thoughts around more like a cross-cultural perspective when thinking about trends in education? Yeah, I guess I would start answering the question by going back to that connection between personalization and senses. Because if you think about education experiences being deeply personalized, then it is also about personalizing all these sensory experiences, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. future of education where you get your favorite smell being puffed towards your face as you're reading your favorite novel, you know, all that. And in Norway, there is this tradition of outdoor learning, especially mm. in early years. So kindergarten children, they spend up to 70% outdoors, not throughout the year, but if it's very cold, they don't uh, tend to spend uh, as much time outside, but Generally speaking, no matter what's the weather, you just get out, you put on your waterproofs and you're outside. It's the so-called thrilu. I don't know if you're uh, the terminology of a thrilu lifestyle, that uh, being outside outdoors is good for you and it's good for the children. So yeah, yeah. that philosophy is not only a philosophy, it's really practiced. And that is of course very good for your general well-being and the sense of sort of responsibility in terms of personal responsibility because you have to survive in nature so you have to make sure that you're well dressed and yeah. you take some food with you and you know how to start a fire so you become self-sufficient yeah. you know especially in the Norwegian winter I would imagine yeah 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 you don't have harsh winters everywhere in Norway but you have to be well dressed and well equipped if you go outside in nature for bit of a longer time, right? It's not a short stroll in the park for half an hour, but several yeah. hours hiking. Uh, mm -hmm, you need mm -hmm. to have good equipment and good sense of how much you can achieve yourself in terms of not climbing or yes, yeah. climbing. And, yeah. and all those skills are nurtured early on in the kindergarten because children can climb on the trees and they can you know, they get hurt and uh, they know that uh, sometimes they have to cry when they fall down, but that is how they learn. Yeah. Uh, so to me, that's a bit of a difference with perhaps the Anglo-American model where early years education tends to be very risk averse. Whereas here in the Nordics, I notice a lot of that sort of openness towards risk and children becoming resilient towards these kinds of experiences. Yeah. Um, and there is, of course, social learning that comes alongside, right? Because right. when you fall down and you start crying, then usually people come to you and ask what's wrong. So we did uh, one project where we looked at first aid in kindergartens and how young children can actually help each other and uh, learn all this vocabulary, apropos vocabulary, you know, like, do you need a plaster? Do you need to call the ambulance? And, you know, yeah. things like that, you can actually start very early on and they're important life skills. And they're also linked to the future of education, you know, like what are the key things you need to know? Perhaps less that kind of education we see these days that tends to be focused on 
yeah, Googleable facts yes. <laughs> rather than the skills that yeah serve you well in any context, anywhere where you are. So yeah, yeah. Mm. One also one thing that is I think inspirational is the way technologies tend to be designed and stories tend to be produced in Nordic countries and certainly Norway is the sort of more of a slow movement focus. Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with the slow TV. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, yes, you are. So it's not such a high paced media environment that I saw in other countries. So mm -hmm. you see that also in the interaction people have. Some people find it annoying that things take ages in Norway. Yeah. But it's that sort of, you know, a different perception of time. And yeah. that is then reflected in the resources and it's reflected in the media. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm giving you this sort of broader trends that uh, might sound a bit stereotypical and they wouldn't apply to everything. But I guess it's a um, bit of a broader overview of the differences. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. I do remember when I first discovered the slow TV movement. That's why I was asking the question where I, I think frequently when you go cross-cultural, you're frequently awakened to ways in which the world could be different mm -hmm. in ways that you've perhaps taken for granted, which is really what a lot of your research, you know, I, I would say is that to some extent. It is just a a bit of a wake-up call and a reminder that we have a much broader context and that includes existing in a, a social setting, existing in nature, existing in a multi-sensory human experience. Mm -hmm. And I think it's real easy to get too narrow and perhaps cognitive and even Cartesian in your thinking mm -hmm. where it's like, I'm a disembodied mind that needs to get this information and you mm -hmm. almost forget the embodiedness of the conveyance of all this stuff. Really amazing stuff. Natalia Kurchakova is a professor at Stavanger University and the Open University. She's also doing really interesting work in EdTech. We'll include links to all this on the show notes for the episode. Natalia, it's been amazing having you on. We're getting closer to conclusion. Is there anything else out there that we haven't touched on so far that you wanted to make sure our listeners heard about? Well, if you allow me to make a, a little advertisement for Stavanger, I stand on the shoulders of giants and we have this queen of uh, perfumery and really of all faction, um, Cicel Tolas. She's originally from Stavanger and she's a very accomplished Norwegian olfactory artist. So uh -huh. if your listeners are interested in uh, knowing more about what can be accomplished with the sense of smell and different types of perfumes, then Google her. I think you'll be inspired by her projects too. That's yeah. awesome. And I will make a point moving forward to try to use an occasional olfactory reference for our listeners <laughs> to remind them of the smells of their life while they're listening to podcasts, which Depending on where you are and what you're doing, uh, it's easy to forget that smell is there until it suddenly reminds you. As we mm. wrap up here, concluding thoughts for our listeners, takeaways based on the conversation that we had today? Smell is very important and it will play increasingly important role for children's education. So watch this space. Amazing stuff with Natalia Kurchakova. Thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, 
please subscribe, write us a review, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.